This is a Federal News Network podcast. When the U.S. military actually uses force, it does so after getting legal advice from the Judge Advocate General Corps. To improve and speed up the assembly of that advice, the Air Force is looking to see if artificial intelligence can help. And here to explain this initiative, we have from West Point law professor Hitoshi Nasu. Professor Nasu, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom. And from Visimo, the vendor of AI, Vice President Alex Haidt. Mr. Haidt, good to have you on. Good morning. Thank you. And tell us, uh, Professor, what it is we're trying to solve here. What is the issue that artificial intelligence might come into play for the JAGs? So during the military operations uh, for each targeting decision, JAG officers, the legal advisors uh, for uh, commanders, uh, need to assimilate and assess a large amount of information. And sometimes they're required to do so in a very uh, constrained time frame. So um, uh, we are trying to develop an a AI-based tool to uh, help them so that they can focus their time on looking at the most problematic aspects of targeting information from this vast amount of information available to them. I get it. So right now you're working with the Air Force in particular? They're kind of a test bed here? So yes, I understand the Air Force has this grant and the company, the Bismo, we are working together with. They received the grant from the Air Force. And with that, they approached us to see whether we can provide our expertise in terms of legal compliance with the targeting operations and requirements. So that's how we got into this project. And Alex, just a quick question. How come you didn't go to the Air Force Academy? Yeah, so that's a good question. When we started the project, we were awarded this STTR funding through AFWorks under the Air Force. And we did some research and found that our research institution partner with West Point and the Lieber Institute really had the best knowledge, both in terms of AI and use of force rule of law at their center. And so that's why we felt that West Point was the best partner for us. So what the learnings that happened there then could probably apply to all the services once you're through this process? That's correct. And what is the technical issue here? What is it you're trying to do from a standpoint? Visimo, I presume, is an AI company. You're based in Pittsburgh. And so you must have a data set and a hope for outcome. Yeah, so right now what we're working on is really just building up a proof of concept. In phase two of this STTR, that's where we would want to be able to identify the right data set as a targeting package that we'd be able to use for this AI that we're training to do legal reviews and help increase the effectiveness and decrease the amount of time for decision making. So the data sets then would be legal decisions and legal history and statutes related to use of force? A little different. It would really be these targeting packages. They're multiple page images and slide decks, both for terminology and for situations that occur during real-time actions that are taken on the battlefield. We're speaking with Alex Haidt. He is a vice president at Visimo of Pittsburgh and with Professor Hitoshi Nasu, a law professor at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. So, Professor, tell us what is the legal situation? Someone wants to use force. A general says, "Okay, this is what we need to do and a targeting package. What are the legal issues that come into play if they feel troops are in danger or that sort of thing? So um, under international law, uh, there are rules that apply to warfighting. 
and those rules regulate the conduct of hostilities, even in situations of armed conflict. So military forces of any nation are required to comply with those rules when they make decisions on the use of force. So in practice, uh, that has meant that the legal advisors, um, uh, the JAG officers, need to, need to be made available to commanders for the planning or directing targeting decisions and operations. So does this vary from country to country? Because it's not just U.S. law then here that has to apply. It's wherever the land is that they're operating in. The rules themselves are universal. All of those states are required to comply with those rules um, uh, as a matter of customary international law. But the way in which they implement uh, those obligations may vary. Uh, and we have a specific way of doing it. And the availability of JAG officers um, uh, for uh, commanders in this country is, is quite phenomenal uh, compared to other countries. And what are the consequences if they make a mistake in targeting and in using force and the JAG says, well, guess what? You know, you violated this particular statute or this particular provision. Yes, the mistake can happen and the law indeed accommodates this room for making mistakes. And that's why we have, for example, obligation to take feasible precautions to avoid unnecessary civilian casualties, for example, or to avoid a mistake about the status of a target. So a mistake can happen. But uh, what we are trying to do with this AI-based tool is to eliminate or reduce the chance of making mistakes. Because we all humans, humans make mistakes. But AI tools may actually help us reduce the chance to make those mistakes. And Alex, maybe just explain a little bit more how you tie the targeting package, which sounds like it has imagery and other information of that nature. Is there any tie back to statute in this? I mean, what is the data? Tell us what the output of applying the algorithm to the target package. Yeah, so to get to the output that we're looking for, what we want to be able to do is is advise people, judge advocates and others when to make that decision more effectively. So as an example, a couple of years ago, there was a hospital bombing of Doctors Without Borders. This occurred because there was a mistake with the targeting coordinates. And maybe if there had been another review process that occurred, that wouldn't have happened. So we want to be able to better inform and better provide other sources of information that inform how and when things should be targeted and how outcomes are going to be produced that say, okay, well, in real time, this is going to show yes, no, this is the right target. If this is the right target, then the AI is not going to say, yes, send the bomb, because that's not something that we allow. But it's going to say, under the law in which we operate, this is the right step. We verified that. And then it's going to go back to a human to make that decision. And if this proves to be an effective tool, once some of the data sets are run through and you can, I guess, we'll run scenarios, if and then types of scenarios on this, what form could this take what would be the deliverable to the armed services? What would they have, a dashboard or something on their smartphone or what? Yeah, so the output could be really in terms of software that is a front end on their computer. It really could be on their smartphone if that's the level of granularity they want to see it in. Or it could just be a script that pops up 
and shows them on that targeting package. Right now, as I understand it, a lot of this is done in sort of a war room situation with a PowerPoint slide deck. And, you know, one of the things us at Visimo, we're experts in technology, AI, software development. We're not experts in the way that wartime decisions are made. And so that's one of the benefits of us working with our partners at West Point. They know how all of these situations play out. And Hitoshi, I imagine then this could then feed back into the way that you train JAGs for this type of situation over time as you learn more from these algorithms. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think it'd be really helpful uh, for training uh, as well as actual practical application uh, in the battlefield as well. Hitoshi Nasu is a law professor at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. And Alex Height is vice president at AI vendor Visimo. Thanks so much. Thanks very much. Good speaking with you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education she was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, As part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader, that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Celebrate this holiday season by sending money to your loved ones with Western Union. As a new customer, you can enjoy a $0 transfer fee when you send money online. For fast and reliable money transfers, use Western Union. Visit westernunion.com or download our app today to get started and your first transfer fee is on us. Services offered by Western Union Financial Services, Inc., NMLS 906983 or Western Union International Services, LLC, NMLS 906985. FX Gain Supply.